Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at LogRocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Ivan Alkalov. He is a web performance engineer and consultant over at Perf Perf Perf. Yes, that's Perf three times. And we're here to talk about React concurrency and some of the interesting features that are coming up with React 18. Welcome to the podcast, Ivan. Hi, Paul. Very nice to meet you. And it's very honored to be at this podcast. We're honored to get to talk with you. Like You're an expert in very niche areas, the bleeding edge of some of the most popular patterns in web development. And we're here on the podcast to try to distill this down for people that maybe don't have enough time to look into the source code themselves or all these sort of things. For you to get in this scenario where you're like, oh yeah, I can go read the source or you know, I really understand concurrency down to its nuts and bolts. Can you just walk us through how you got there? Did you start off in React? Did you start off back in the PHP land? I actually started back in the Flash land, uh, like the Adobe Flash. So back in school, I got introduced into Adobe Flash and I started doing some stuff in that. Then weirdly, I stumbled upon C++ and uh, delved into that ground. But after coding for a couple of years in C++, I realized that it's very hard to find jobs in C++ because you need to know algorithms and I don't love algorithms. So what can you do if you don't do C++? You could do web development or mobile development, but I didn't have a smartphone. So I went into web development <laughs> and I worked as an engineer for multiple years across multiple companies. And at some point after spending half a year configuring web packets and projects, <laughs> I realized that I have some web performance expertise that I could offer to other companies. And at that point I started consulting and I was lucky to work with some great startups and big companies like Google, Framer, et cetera. And I've been doing this for five years at this point and helping a lot of companies get faster. And I like this very much. That's a great repertoire to have once you say you're a Google developer expert. That's definitely puts a green stamp on your name. And you can tell that you like what you're doing, right? Because you've been doing it for a while. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I definitely love it. I love absolutely everything that like, touches performance and front-end performance in particular. So we're going to be talking about React concurrency. And specifically, you mentioned things about time slicing which is like an older feature in React. It's not necessarily the newest and greatest. For people who don't know what time slicing is and how it speeds up your application, why is that a feature that you might find in, in some apps that are pushed out today? So this is actually a really cool innovation that React introduced into the popular web development. Maybe it was present in some other like stacks in some other framework, like non-web frameworks, I'm not sure. But the idea is that when you're writing some JavaScript and you have some button and you want to click that button and that on-click handler changes something in the app, like renders, for example, replaces completely one page with another page, what typically happens is you click the button and then if the render is large, the page just freezes for like half a second. You have most definitely seen it if you interacted with any heavy app or heavy site. So what time slicing does in React 18 is it takes that work and it slices it into chunks of 5 millisecond, 10 millisecond tops to give the browser a way to handle any user input in between the rendering. So with time slicing now, if you click that button and that button re-renders the whole page and the user tries to interact with the page, tries to click some other button, 
while that page is rendering, the browser will be able to handle that input right away and the page would not feel frozen, the page would not be frozen and the user experience will be much better. But it does not really work out of the box. Also, you need to actually tell Rack to use it. And this is on the client side, right? This is for the browser painting my stuff. Yeah, correct. Okay. To me, that really reminds me to like operating systems class. It's like the CPU scheduler. We have different types of events, a queue coming in, and there's some interrupts, right? Oh, you're pointing at me. That means there's some good stuff happening. Yeah, but that's like precisely the metaphor that the React team actually used in the docs. So the idea is that React renderer now works like a CPU. So like back in the old ages when the CPUs only had one core, but you wanted to run multiple apps at the same time, the way CPUs have handled that is they would switch between the like several apps very quickly, like multiple times per second. And that way, if you have two apps running side by side and you try typing in the first app and then clicking the second app at the same time, or two apps try running the same thing side by side, even with one core, the CPU would be able to process both things happening at the same time. It would not get blocked by the stuff that's happening in the first app until it completes. And that's precisely what React is doing to web development. You could have multiple updates, multiple branches of updates running at the same time, and React would just jump in between them until it has no more work to do. It would also prioritize more important stuff, like synchronous clicks or less important stuff. I don't know, background updates. You just need to tell React that some update is a background one, a low priority one. So you have sort of like this threading. Could we call it threading? Or no, we'll call it scheduling. We'll call it scheduling, right? I'm actually curious. I don't know what's the metaphor in CPUs when it jumps in a context switching. So given that we're just switching, we can think of it like a scheduler. How is this one line of execution different from concurrency? When I hear concurrency, what's coming up in React, I think about two things happening at the same time, which is inherently different. So tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm right, Ivan. What's the difference here? Oh, yeah. So these are actually the same thing. So the idea is that React went through several rebrandings of this feature back when this was introduced in 2018 when Dan Abramov gave the talk beyond React 16 or something like that. The way he introduced this, he called this feature time slicing. But then just a month later in the next blog post in the React blog, that time slicing was already renamed into async rendering. And then... Over the next several years, async rendering was renamed into concurrent mode, and then concurrent mode was renamed into concurrent features. And there are like multiple reasons for this. So like it all tracks. And actually asked Dan Mabramo just to do on Twitter as I was preparing for the podcast, like why was time slicing renamed? And time slicing is actually a part of concurrent features. So you get this huge box with concurrent features written in it with a bunch of features in it. And one of the features is time slicing, which is precisely taking this huge chunk of work and slicing it into chunks of like five, 10 milliseconds. Okay, gotcha. So it's sort of like a subset of this grander box of tools that we have that we can call concurrent rendering. Yes. So under the hood, if we want to look at how the actual, could we call it slicing? How the slicing happens, how React thinks about divvying up the rendering on the client side. Does it choose top-level items on the top of the page before bottom-level items when it slices these up? How does that process happen? How does React decide or not decide? Can you as a developer have a hand in how it decides? Oh, yeah. And so, by the way, I might be a little fuzzy here. This might not like perfectly match the history. Like I, I was not through the whole process. So I'm 80% sure I'm right about this concurrent features versus time slicing explanation. If anyone decides to comment on, on Twitter or Hacker News, but I would actually appreciate that comment in the correction. But yeah, 
the idea with uh, time slicing, the idea with concurrent rendering is that by default in the past in React 17 and React 16 and all the past versions of React, all the updates that were happening in the app, they were urgent. So you would click a button and React would go and process that update right away. So like you would click a button or you would click your type into an input and that would cause a thousand components to render and React would go and render these thousand components right away and it would keep re-rendering these components or like it would keep processing this render for all the thousand components all the way until it's done. And only when it's done, it would finish executing the work and it would give the control back to the browser so the browser could process the further input. So the way it works in React 18 now is that all updates by default are still urgent. So whenever you click a button that schedules a thousand components to render these thousand components are still processed at the same time. But you could take some update or you could take some state value and you could mark that update or you could mark that state value as non-urgent. And if you do that, then what React is going to do is the next time that state changes, React is going to take that state and instead of processing all this stuff at the same time, it's going to take the state update and it's going to start processing it, re-rendering some components. And then once five milliseconds pass, it would stop rendering the components, schedule some work to be resumed in the next frame, like with some basic set timeout zero or some other hacks that it uses in the, uh, there are like three things that it uses in, in the sources. And it would give the control back to the browser. And then the browser would process any user input that's pending, render any updates on the screen, do whatever stuff it needs to do. And then when the next frame starts, React, the browser would call the callback that React has scheduled, like the set timeout zero, and React would keep processing the next components. And then five milliseconds later, again, it would give the control back to the browser and again, pick up the control in the next frame. Probably kind of hard to imagine, like it really clicked for me when I just saw it in DevTools, but the way you enable it and the way you could also see how it works in DevTools, how like this big chunk of work is actually split into a lot of tiny chunks of works, is take, I don't know, render thousands of components, then add some states that would force all these components to update. For example, render a thousand of buttons that would render some number, right? And then when you click some button, that number changes in all of the buttons. And then wrap that state update with a function called start transition that you can import from React. And then if you do that, and if you see how that looks in DevTools with start transition and without start transition, if you have enough buttons, you would basically see the difference how there's one huge task in the DevTools that blocks the main thread, that blocks the page and prevents the browser from doing anything while it's processing versus a thousand of tiny tasks where each just processes, renders just a few components at a time. One thing that caught my attention is you say in order to interject into the sliced rendering process here as React divvies this up, I have to mark maybe a state update as non-urgent. That's an interesting use of words because I would think that is quite urgent. Oh yeah. So I don't know. I think the primary thing that you need to learn as you move to React is you know, adopt these concurrent features is that some updates are more important than others, right? I call them as urgent and non-urgent. React calls them as like high priority or low priority. You could also call them as like synchronous and non-synchronous. But the idea is that when you have an app and let's take a filter, for example, right? You have a filter, you have a filter input, and you have a bunch of, I don't know, blog posts, for example, that that filter filters. And so when you type into the filter, 
two things happen. First, the input value updates. So for example, I typed A and the input updated and the input showed A. And then the list of the blog post updates showing all the blog posts that include like A in it. And so if you look at this, like in most of the apps today, most of these pieces of app, both the inputs and the lists are going to be controlled by a single piece of state, like called, for example, I don't know, input value or like filter value. And that's very logical. You have a single bit of state that controls everything. In the app, you would probably have this single bit of state that controls both the input and the lists. But now, imagine that you have a really huge list of blog posts, for example, 10,000 or 100,000 of blog posts. And every time you're typing to that input, you have to render a lot of blog posts and thus the typing is really slow. And so at this point, if you look at it from the user perspective, they're actually not one bit of state, but two bits of state that the user cares about. The first bit of state is the inputs where the user types, which shows what the user is typing. And the second bit of state is the actual blog posts, which show like the results of the filtering. And to the user, those are two different bits of data. And to the user, they actually do not have to update at the same time. And so what we can do with React 18 is we could take this single bit of state called filter value or whatever that controls both the input and the list of blog posts, and we could split it into two bits of state. And then when we're updating the second bit of state that controls the blog posts, we could wrap that update, literally wrap that set state function, right? Take that set, st set state function that updates the blog post, the list of blog posts, and wrap it with start transition. It's a function that we import from React, or it's a function that you get if you call a hook called use transition. So both these are two equivalent ways to use it. And if you do that, that would tell React that second update is non-urgent, meaning React can take it and React can render it in the background, not giving the control back to the browser and not applying any changes to the screen until the render has fully completed. And in the process, the app would just stay fully interactive. So will that sort of pattern also assume and put the onus, the responsibility of responsible API fetching on the developer? Because this is something where if we didn't have time slicing and you were implementing this, you would see it get slow and you go, huh, maybe I shouldn't request for a new blog post or I shouldn't filter in this grotesquely expensive way because my input's slowing down. But in this pattern, Every time you type, you'll go send a new filter, you go send a new API request, but you got to be responsible here and say, okay, even though I'm, I'm visually updating fast, I have to use like debounce or something like this. Maybe you could hide some inefficiencies in the way you're updating the state that could actually kill the application. Have you seen this in the wild? Have you run into it in your own personal projects? This is actually a great comment because like in this example, I'm not talking about any network requests. So with network requests, we do, we actually yeah, need to think, are we reloading the server? I don't know if it was a network request or probably just paginate. That's the easiest approach to both keep the server loads small and also not render like a hundred thousand elements on the front end. But there's lots of stuff that does not interact with the server and still needs to render a lot of data, right? Maybe it's not the list of blog posts, but maybe it's some data intensive application that needs to render a table with a thousand rows. I know maybe it's some stock trading data or maybe it's some, I don't know, SaaS app for like dentists where like the person looks at all the clients that the dental practice has. So, and in all these cases, you might be interacting just with the local data and rendering a lot of stuff on the screen. And 
that's where these non-argent updates make the most sense to me because like you'd have some really expensive render that renders a lot of stuff and you could wrap it but it's not like super argent there are like some parts of the ui that need to be updated first and you would wrap it with start transition and the app would become much more responsive automatically and that's actually one place where i really like to apply start transition so my go to like my favorite heuristic with Rectitin, like this switch in my head that I needed to make when I upgraded to Rectitin when I worked with Rectitin is that previously when I would have some inputs that produces a lot of updates and I would type into it and these updates would be slow, I would just put the bounce or put throttle in there, right? To make sure that like I'm not updating the UI on every key press. I'm updating it just once per second, for example, only when I finish typing. So now if I ever want to put a debouncing or throttling somewhere, the next thought that I have in my head is, can I put start transition there? Because start transition is basically debouncing or throttling on steroids. It's really magical. You can think of it as debouncing or throttling, but instead of giving it a single timer, timeout, like a second, you just pass the update that you need to do into it. And then React makes it work in a way that on a fast machine, it completes immediately. On a slow machine, it takes as long as it needs, but it does not block the UI. So you can use it in a debounce fashion for some debounce cases, it sounds like, when you want to schedule something and have it be non-blocking. Precisely. Now, Ivan, I'd love to talk a little bit about some features of React 18 that play into this, like hydration, because that's been a hot button topic over the past years as we've been doing hybrid render and all this stuff. Right before we hop into that, though, I'm just going to remind all of our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket is here to help you make applications faster and spend less time in the developer tools and in the console. LogRocket can help you discover bugs with trends to surface issues that you might not have been able to find. And this way you can spend more time building a great app. So head over to LogRocket.com today to try it for free. Ivan, we're going to talk about hydration for a sec because this, for people we have on the podcast, we're talking about hybrid rendering, server-side rendering, the static apps where you don't even render it. How does React 18 target hydration, make it less expensive, less computationally expensive? This is actually my favorite subject. So if you're not familiar with hydration, it's basically a process where you take a server render tab and you make it interactive. And the way it works, the reason it exists, and this is a bit of the net server background that I need to explain to also show how React makes hydration faster. In general, the way React renders stuff is it has three steps. The render step, the commit step, and the effects step. On the first step, on the render step, whenever you update something with the app, whenever you do any kind of render, React takes the updated components, it executes them, because rendering the component is literally taking the component function, function and calling it. And as a result, it takes some JSX that it basically converts into a virtual DOM. That's the first step. On the second step, on the commit step, React takes all that virtual DOM, React compares it with the previous virtual DOM, if there's any, and it applies the changes to the actual page HTML. And then on the third step, on the effect step, it runs component mount, component update, use layout effect, use effect, stuff like this. So all these three steps happen anytime you change anything in your React app, anytime React has to render anything. So the idea behind the hydration is that Hydration is basically an optimization. So in a typical app, in a typical client render tab, so let's go back to 2014, right? We didn't have any server-side rendering. We just had some basic React, and we would 
build an app into one huge bundle. We would load that bundle on the client, and then we would call regdom.render with the huge DOM tree. And then Rect would perform these three steps, render, commit, and effects, right? So the idea behind hydration with server-side rendering is that the commit step, when you do server-side rendering, is actually unnecessary because you do not need to take virtual DOM and you do not need to apply it to convert it into HTML. You already have the HTML. The server has just rendered the HTML and the server has just sent it, so you could just skip this step completely. So hydration is a performance optimization. It helps server render tabs to be faster, but hydration can still be slow. And the reason for this is that the render phase, the first phase that Rack does on every update and also on the first render, it can also be slow. The more components you have in the app, the more component functions Rack has to call and the more time that would take. And in fact, in practice, like whenever I'm working with the Rack tabs, hydration is literally the most expensive React update, the most expensive JavaScript task that I see whenever I'm optimizing performance. Interesting. Yeah, and the reason for this is like when you click some button and some components update, it's always only the components that have changed, right? But when you're rendering the app for the first time, like rendering it or hydrating it, all components on the page need to render. And that's like by definition more expensive than just rendering just a part of components on future updates. So this is really expensive. And this also worsens your Lighthouse core because it makes the total blocking time metric worse. And it also worsens your core vitals because it makes first input delay and interaction to next paint worse. So with the React team, one thing I'm really excited about is that you could take this initial render, which is very expensive, and you could tell React that, hey, take this initial render and do it in a non-blocking manner. Render it as if it was a non-argent update. And React would take that single huge task that renders all the components on the page that typically takes half a second, like the actual numbers I'm seeing on actual React sites. And it would split it into a bunch of tasks, just five, 10 milliseconds long. And so if the user now interacts with the page while the page is hydrating, that interaction would be way faster. And the page would not be frozen while it's hydrating. So you can essentially apply some of these ideas we were talking about to the actual hydration phase, make it non-urgent, and then it's interruptible. Yeah, precisely. Just like with this filter, right? When you're like typing and some part of the app is updated non-urgently, the same thing you could apply to hydration and also make it hydrate non-urgently. Amazing. And it sounds like this is just another thing to throw in the basket of benefits we can get from thinking about drawing things on the UI like a scheduler slicing it up. It's one of the many benefits we can get. And we've talked about benefits only. Ivan, are there any drawbacks you think that this is going to cause either in the development style we see from people or if we're staying within the React bubble, like further arguments down the line within the React ecosystem? Oh yeah, definitely. So like there's no free lunch, right? This is that's a really cool improvement, but no free lunch. <laughs> yeah. And in general, two challenges that I could foresee. The first of them is like the ultimate limitation, like you implement concurrency in the React core, but you get some drawbacks that come from this. And the second one is probably stuff more connected to misuse, like until it really clicks in your head, it's a new pattern. It's like, it needs time to really click in your head. Until it really clicks in your head, there's a chance that I as a developer or somebody else on my team might apply it incorrectly, and that would actually lead to more performance issues. So 
The first thing, the drawbacks that are inherent from the implementation, it's not really my opinion. Like I'm not familiar with like the React core enough to have any opinion on this, but the opinion of the Vue framework and the React framework. So both Vue and React looked at React concurrency back when it was introduced in 2018, and they experimented with it, and they decided that, hey, no, we are not going to ship this. And the reason for this is while concurrency is really cool, like it lets you take a huge chunk of fork and split it into smaller chunks of fork, it by default just increases the complexity of the scheduler, increases the complexity of the framework core. So React before concurrency and React after concurrency are two different Reacts. React after concurrency is more complicated and React after concurrency needs to do more work. And you're getting these new features, but for every update you need to do, the overhead that React has to do to process that update is bigger. And so the argument from Vue.js, for example, was that A, Vue.js is just cheaper, like the Vue.js core just does less work for every update, so concurrency is not really needed. And B, remember what how we talked about the render phase and the commit phase. First React renders all the components, and then React applies the changes to the DOM. So concurrency only optimizes the first phase. Applying changes to the DOM is not optimized. And so concurrency helps if you have an expensive render phase, if you have a lot of components, or if your framework core is so complicated that it has a lot of overhead in processing the rendering. But it does not help with the commit, does not help with applying the changes to the DOM. And so the Vue's argument was that Vue is already cheap enough that the render phase does not need to be optimized, and so it just doesn't need concurrency at all. The second kind of issues comes from until React concurrency fully clicks in your head, it's possible to misapply it or like apply it and get not the performance result that you expect. And I think there are two common pitfalls here. The first one is related to just the uh, urgent versus non-urgent updates. So when you have some set state function, right, and that set state function causes a thousand components to render, you could wrap that set state function with start transition and expect that all these thousand components, they would be rendered in a non-blocking manner. Basically, the React would spend as much time as it needs, maybe a second rendering all these components, but to the user that would be very responsive, the page would not be frozen for a second. So there's one pitfall here, which is this only works if all of the individual components are cheap. If any of the components is expensive on its own, for example, you have a single component, like you're trying to render a thousand components, right? But one of these components takes half a second to render, like that component function takes half a second to execute, then the page would still be frozen for that half a second. And the reason for this is when Rack does time slicing, it can only slice in between the components. The way it works is React starts rendering, React gets this queue of components that it needs to render, right? Non-concurrently, non-blockingly. And then React starts processing that queue. And after processing every component, React looks at the timer and checks, hey, have five milliseconds passed yet? And if five milliseconds have passed since React has started processing the components, then React does basically set them out zero and gives the control back to the browser. And then like when set them out zero fires, React continues processing the components. The challenge, however, is if any component is expensive on its own, this function that takes 500 milliseconds, right? The component function that takes 500 milliseconds. React would start executing that function and React would not be able to check the timer until that function execution completes. So you would render this component and the component would take 500 milliseconds and React would 
once the component completes, React would check the timer and React would be like, oh, holy heck, it's been 500 milliseconds, not 5 milliseconds. Okay, time to do the set timeout zero. And so React would do that, but it can only do that once the component rendering completes. So luckily, this case is uncommon in apps. So the way these apps work is you have a lot of components, like a huge component tree, but each individual component is cheap. So in 98% of the cases, I would say start transition works as you would expect. But in some cases, for example, once I had a client, it was a static website, like a blog or something, and each blog post was aftered in Markdown, and they were converting that Markdown to HTML straight in the React component. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was fairly expensive. Like that was taking 100, 200 milliseconds. That's a case where start transition would not help. So that's like one pitfall to be aware of. Another pitfall to be aware of is we talked about how start transition could optimize hydration rate. The challenge here is that React is smart about hydration. So if you try to make hydration concurrent, and you could do it in two ways, you could do it by wrapping the whole direct DOM.hydrator call with start transition. That's one way. Or you could do it by wrapping the whole React tree or some parts of the tree with suspense. You don't even need to specify the fallback, just wrap them with suspense. So if you do that, and React would start hydrating the app, React would hydrate the app concurrently, right? It would process some components, five milliseconds, give the control back to the browser. But then, if the user clicks something within the app, what would happen is React would take that click, and the moment that click happens, React would switch back to urgent rendering, to non-concurrent rendering. So basically, let's say if the app has, for example, 2,000 components, right, 2,000 rectangles, and then you click the page anywhere, after a thousand rectangles were processed in this non-blocking manner, you click the page, and the next thousand components, the next thousand rectangles, they would be processed in one go, and they would freeze the page again. I'll send some links to the discussion in the rectorking group about this. But you probably remember the cases when you went to some website on a slow network, and you tried clicking some buttons, and, and these buttons were not doing anything, right? Because the bundle has not yet loaded, because there was no JavaScript yet on the page, so you were clicking stuff, like you're clicking the menu button and the menu was not opening yet. And that's, we grew used to it. But if you look at it with the fresh eyes, that's like really annoying. That's not a great user experience. So what React tries to do is it tries to avoid that as soon as it already can execute any code. So if you tell React to hydrate the page non-urgently, concurrently, but then the user tries to interact with some part of the page that is not yet hydrated, React would take that part of the page and it would hydrate that part urgently so that after the hydration is complete, React can handle that click right away so that React does not lose that click as if it happens when like the bundle has not loaded yet. The challenge here, and here we come to the misuse, right, is that this hydrating this part happens within a single suspense boundary. So if you have your whole app wrapped with suspense and you have no other suspense boundaries anywhere else, then the moment the user clicks anywhere in the app, the whole app will switch to regular blocking rendering. And that's going to be bad because to the user, the app would still lag, and to your interaction to next paint metric, which is going to be core vital soon, by the way, it's also going to be a bad interaction. And the way you solve this, the way you avoid this misuse is, in general, you just look at some parts of your app, and you separate some logical parts, like maybe I have a header, maybe I have a footer, maybe I have a menu, maybe I have some items in the list, and you wrap each of them with 
a separate suspense block. And then if the user clicks in the header, then only the header is going to be hydrated urgently. If the user clicks in the footer, then only the footer is going to be hydrated urgently. Other parts of the page is still going to be hydrated nor urgently. And so the page is going to be blocked instead of half a second, for example, if it took the whole page to hydrate urgently, it would be blocked just for 0.1 seconds if it's only the footer that was hydrated urgently. And that's much better. But you need to be aware of where these sort of rendering contours lie within your application in order to set suspense boundaries in the right spots, right? And that's part of the proper use here that we're talking about. Sort of like the rendering boundaries of your sets of components. You have to be aware of what baskets of components in your app might take more time versus less time so that you don't create these blocks. My answer is no. So I think this sounds very complicated because typically when I'm explaining it, I like to show the pictures and in the links that I'll send, you could actually see the pictures that the rec team drove to explain this. But you don't really need to know about which components take longer, which components take less time. You just need to look at your app, look at your page, and just think logically, okay, which sections this page has? And then take the sections and wrap the sections with suspense. And that's it. You don't need to have any technical knowledge about the page sections. Like, imagine you're a designer. You would look at the page, like at the profile page, for example, right? of some social network and it'd be like, okay, that's a header. Okay, that's like the user banner. That's like a post, that's like a sidebar. And just look at that and pick some parts that are medium-sized enough, like not too small for wrapping everything with suspense to be annoying, but also not too large to mean that when the user clicks something, everything blocks. Look at these sections like a designer and you know, like a user and wrap these page parts with suspense and that's gonna be it. Oh, so it's more like from the user perspective about what I interact with in sections and you can think about it through this lens. Yeah. Ivan, before we part ways, if people want to hear more about your interactions with React or your thoughts, because you mentioned that you like showing diagrams and stuff like this, do you have writings anywhere or do you post anywhere? Oh yeah, so I have Twitter slash X accounts located at Iamakulov. So I-A-M and my last name. And I regularly post some stuff there, like both from my consulting experience and just from my diving into like React internals and stuff. And sometimes also blog at 3perf.com. So if you want to see some case studies, I don't know, like diving into Notion loading performance or like diving into why a Spotify interaction is slow or just some tips and tricks that I've learned from my consulting experience, some bigger writing also like the best writing, the biggest, the biggest writing also goes there. I mean, that sounds really interesting. I want to know why Spotify sometimes can be a little slow. So we can definitely throw those links down in the show notes if people want to check them out. But Ivan, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on and enlightening us about time slicing and concurrent rendering. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure as well. 